reading in verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. And uh, I want to encourage you to take notes. We talk about it all the time. I encourage you to uh, send out a tweet if you feel like God's stirring something in your heart or put something out on social media. We're okay with that. I was listening to a, a podcast this week. Um, and they talked about if you see something on the screen you like, take a picture of it. I never thought of that, but if that helps you to remember something you see up there, then, then let's just use all of this technology to, uh, to our advantage. So we're in the middle of this series, and, and before I read it, I just kind of want to recap a little bit. So we're in a series, Walking Through Ephesians, a series that we're calling, He Is, I Am, So What? And one of the threads that runs throughout Ephesians is this before and after sort of picture, that, that before Christ you were this, and after Christ you were that. Before there was one way of living, but now there's a new way of living. So over and over, you'll see phrases like, you once were, but now you are. Or this week, we're going to see a conversation. Or, or writing about an old self and a new self. And I just want you to kind of hang on to that sort of thread because it really does run from beginning to end of Ephesians, this before and after picture. If you were here last week, you, you probably remember that we talked about the fact that, that Paul starts chapter 4 with this imperative that we are to live a life worthy of the calling. And the idea there is that, that we're all called, we're all, we're all called to be something, to do something, and, and in our calling... We are to live, to, to, to be the thing that God has called us today. So we, we coined a phrase last week, the royal way, that we are to live the royal way. Once you understand that you were lost, but now you're found, that you were, that you were uh, estranged from God, but now you're adopted, that you're an heir and a co-heir with Jesus himself, what Paul is saying is, well, if that's the truth, if you really are an heir and a co-heir with, with Jesus himself, then you ought to live like it. You ought to live the royal way. So that's what he means when he says, live a life worthy of, of the calling that you've received, that we're to live the royal way. And the question becomes, well, how do we do that? How do we actually live the royal way? How do we live according to the calling that we've received? And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about. But really, that's the focus of chapters 4, 5, and 6, is more of the application of living into this great calling. So with all that, we're going to read Ephesians 4, 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 32. Paul writes, so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, and they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that they may benefit those who listen. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind, be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, once again, there is way more here than I could ever preach in 30 minutes. So I pray that the words that you give me to say are the words that will um, take us uh, somewhere where maybe we've never been with you, that, that we would uh, experience you in a way that is life-changing. There is so much in these few verses, so just pray for wisdom as we unpack it. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of uh, the preachers that I really like, sometimes when I'm working through a passage after I get most of the way done with my sermon, I, I go and I say, well, I wonder what he would have said about this. So um, I looked it up, and in this particular passage, um, he preached for seven weeks. I was like, well, he had a lot to say. So I say all that to say there is a lot in here. There's way more than, than we can cover in 30 minutes, and, and I encourage you to go back to dig into this. There's things I'm not going to have time to talk about, but it's all there, and the Holy Spirit is in you, and he will help to bring truth to it. So keep going back to Ephesians. Keep reading where it's done. Just know we are cruising through Ephesians in just a few weeks. We could have easily taught Ephesians all year long if we had wanted to, and, and so I just want to encourage you to go back. So verse 17, Paul begins with, with writing this part of it, and he says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. The word insist there is the same word is declare or testify. And what I want you to get out of this is Paul is, is using this to kind of tee everything up. He's saying, look, this is super important. So I testify you to you. I declare to you. And not only do I declare, I declare in the Lord. So he's kind of saying, look, this is really important and it's directly from God. I declare to you in the Lord what I'm about to say. So what that ought to do is it ought to cause us to kind of sit up straight and say, well, whatever Paul's about to write is pretty important for all of us as followers of Christ. And he keeps going there and he says, no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's worth remembering because you're going to see it over and over in Paul's letters. But that word Gentiles here is synonymous with just uh, uh, those who are far from God, those who aren't walking with God, those who are ungodly. So you can just take the word Gentiles and, and replace it with ungodly or godless people. So, so just remember, that's kind of what he means there. It's, it's less about someone's ethnicity and more about whether or not they're walking with God or not walking with God. Or another way to make this verse applicable to you and I is, is we could take the word Gentile out and we could add the word society in there. So it may look like this, no longer live as, the, as society does or no longer live as the world does, might be another way to say it, in the futility of their thinking. He's comparing a way of thinking that's God-centered and all the rest of the way of thinking. And that's what we need to hold on to so we don't get into any kind of ethnicity because that's not where he's going. So the idea here is that when we have futile thinking, futile just means that it's empty or that it's hollow or insufficient or trivial or unsubstantial. In other words, the thinking of the world, the thinking of society, the thinking of these ungodly Gentiles was it lacked any kind of depth. It wasn't deep thinking, it was surfacey thinking. And so that's, that's worth hanging out to because one of the antidotes to futile thinking would be to think more deeply, right? If, if it's surfacey thinking, then part of what Paul is calling us to is to engage our minds in something more than futile thinking, to think deep thoughts, to allow ourselves to think more deeply. And I don't want to move past this um, too fast because this is, this is kind of huge. This is really the key to understanding the entire passage today. 
Because in this passage today is this long list of do's and don'ts, a long list of, of ways of behaving if you're a follower of Christ. It's, a, it's kind of a picture of what it looks like to walk the royal way, to, to live the royal way. But Paul's not writing the list so that we can just write it down and say, let's do it. He's writing the list more as a, as a gauge or a way of us assessing how we're doing as we live out our faith in Jesus. His primary concern is our mindset. His primary concern is, is our way of thinking. He's saying that, that, that the way we think and what's going on inside is going to affect what's going to happen on the outside. The focus is on thinking rightly, thinking more deeply. Because what we think, what we believe, what we meditate on, what consumes your thoughts really does determine your action. It really does determine what you're going to do. So what we need to remember is in the Greco-Roman world, the time of, of this writing, the, 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 the people didn't really separate heart and mind the way we do. There was sort of this heart, mind, body, soul was all one thing, and it was this description of the, the inner man, the description of the spiritual person that's inside. So, so this could just have easily have been, you know, be careful uh, what you think, be careful what's going on in your mind, because, because you're, out of it will flow your responses, your behaviors, your attitudes. What you think about actually matters. So is your thinking futile, or is your thinking have depth? Sin always always, always starts in the mind. In Ephesians 4, Paul is teaching the need for us to have inside-out transformation. This is so important that we get this because if we're not careful, the rest of Ephesians can become a letter of behavioralism. It can just be a list of do's and don'ts that we write on a, on a chalkboard somewhere. Who uses a chalkboard anymore? All right. If you have a chalkboard, you write on a chalkboard. The rest of us would write it on a tablet or something. But anyway, you write down a list of do's and don'ts, and then you just try harder, and you say, I got to do this. I got to get rid of anger and rage and bitterness, and it all becomes behavioralism. And Paul is making it clear this isn't about behavioralism. This is about inside-out transformation, the Spirit of God doing something inside of you. Just to be clear, Paul is making the point that every one of us experienced bad thinking. So that whole first paragraph that you have is, a, is this description of what we call in Christian circles depravity. All of us suffered from bad thinking. All of us suffered from a calloused heart. All of us suffered from, from this thing because of our fallenness that, that he's talking about. So, so he says it's, it's really, it applies to every one of us. And if you look at verse 18, it says that we are darkened in our understanding and separated from God, that there was a fog or a darkness that kept us from knowing the things of God, of being able to think more deeply about the things of God, that we all had this. And if you continue reading in the end of 18 and 19, it says, so it, it resulted in a hardening of our hearts and a loss of all sensitivity. So our hearts become callous and we become insensitive to the things of God, unable to discern what it is we're supposed to do, what it is God wants us to do. The deal here is that once the things that seemed wrong to you at one point just become very normal, they become acceptable to you, that you become calloused or hard, unable to discern right and wrong. And so the things that are wrong just become normal to you. So, so I learned a new word this, this week. I'd never seen this word before. Maybe it won't be new to you, but the word is ethicist. 
So Ephesus. So remember last week I talked about the fact that verses 4, 5, and 6 was really a, an unpacking of the ethics of, of Christianity. And remember, ethics is a system of moral principles or rules. Recognized, respected conduct. That's the words I want you to hang on to. Recognized, respected conduct. So an ethicist is a person who specializes in telling us or teaching us what is recognized, respected conduct. What's acceptable? And you got to think about this because what was acceptable a few years ago or what was acceptable now wasn't acceptable just a few years ago. Things have changed. Ethics in society have changed over the last decade. They've always been changing, right? So there's something going on that changes what we deem as recognized respected conduct. So an ethicist is a person who does that. And so what we have to do as individuals is pay attention to who are we allowing to be our personal ethicist. Who's teaching you what is recognizable and acceptable? Who are you listening to and what are you listening to that shapes your ethics? And the question is, are those ethics according to society or if you want to say the Gentile standards or the ungodly standards, are they the, are they the, the acceptable norms of the world are they, or are they acceptable to Christianity? Are they acceptable to what the word of God says? Because they don't always line up. And we need to think to ourselves, is that really what's recognized as acceptable according to this or is that just the movement of society? So an ethicist and, and today are the, are the movies that we watch, right? It's the songs that we listen to. It's the books that we read. Hopefully it's the pastors that you listen to. But, but it's all of those things, and we need to, to pay attention to that. And we need to make sure that, that, that what we're watching isn't dulling our senses and making what was once unacceptable acceptable. So we normalize sin sometimes to the point that it just becomes acceptable. So one of the things I love to do with my kids, and actually Casey's the one, I can't remember if Casey or Jake actually got me into this, but they find series on Netflix and then they watch them like, and they just watch them. That's the beauty of now, we can watch it over and over. You want to watch another one, want to watch another one, and you can do that with a series, right? And so they get me sucked in sometimes, and, and it's actually been kind of fun because that becomes our series. And so we watch a couple and we say, well, let's not watch anymore. We'll watch next time together. And, and so some of them have been good, but Jake and I started this series, and I'm not going to tell you what it is because half of you would go home and turn it on just because of what I'm about to say. But anyway, I love the story. It was very rich. The, the storyline was rich. The characters were cool. But every week it got just a little more raunchy. And so by the time we watched one episode, it just was, it was bad. I mean, sinfully bad. And uh, I just said to Jake, I said, we can't watch this anymore. This is bad for our hearts. Right? And he said, okay. I don't think he was happy about that. But, so we haven't watched any more of it. But the reason we couldn't watch it is because it, it, I can't. I can't watch that without it affecting me. I have to be careful what movies I go to. I have to be careful what I watch because what happens is I become desensitized to something that should be very sensitive to me. So, so this will happen to you too. You'll watch a show or a movie and the first time you watch it, you'll be shocked. and like, oh, well, you watch it over and over and pretty soon you're no longer shocked. You're no longer, there's no ooh factor and you just... It's normalized. So what happens is it becomes, the sin becomes normalized and then it becomes the acceptable standard or it becomes the new thing of our ethics. So I'm just, I'm just trying to lay this out in a way that you know that, that, that the way the world thinks and the way we think has to be 
different. And who you allow to shape your ethics is pretty important. So look back at verse 19. It says you become desensitized, right? Which is what we're talking about. You become dull in your senses and you indulge in every kind of impurity and become full of greed. Because when you start to indulge in impurities, you become selfish. And when you're selfish, you're always going to be greedy. Why? Because you're thinking about yourself and it's going to lend yourself towards being greedy. Now, here's what I want you to realize. Everything I've talked about right now is really easy to apply globally. You can listen to this and you can be thinking, and some of you are, and I don't mean to, to, to point my finger at anybody, but if the shoe fits, some of you are thinking, yeah, that's America. America's really gone away from its morality. That's, that's our society. We've really moved away from society. And you know what? That's, that's probably true. But you're kind of letting yourself off the hook because Paul wasn't really writing this to society. He was writing it to you and I. And here's what I would say. It is easy to be a crusader for a distant cause, but it is much harder to stare in the mirror and see your own depravity. It is way easier to see this problem, to be a crusader for if America would only change. And what I'm telling you is Paul is writing this letter to you as a follower of Jesus and saying, be careful about your heart. Let this passage be a mirror for you to ask those places, where have you become dull in your senses? Where are you allowing things to be in your life that shouldn't be in your life? Make this personal. You have to be intentional about doing that. The truth is, if we as evangelical Christians really were in touch with our own depravity, with just how messed up we are, then when we spoke on things within society, we would have a much stronger voice because we would do it from a place of humility. We would do it from a, a, a place of understanding, not a place of judgment. You see, sometimes we think as evangelical Christians, it's our job to convict the world of sin, but somebody already has that job. That's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to come to convict the world of sin. So our job is just to talk about what, what God has done in our own lives to bring glory to God by the way we live our lives. Let the Holy Spirit be the one. So we think we got to go out and tell everybody what's right and wrong. And what I'm telling you is let's let the Holy Spirit do that. Let's get in touch with our own depravity and let's be broken before the Lord. All right. So some of you are thinking this is not a very fun sermon. <laughs> so... I'm sorry for that, but i got to be true to the text. And it's about to change. Because this first paragraph is a paragraph about our depravity, but the next paragraph is the other side. Remember, the thread through Ephesians is what was and what is, who you were and who you are. So look at verse 20. It says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him with the, accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is corrupted with deceitful desires and be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on a new self. You see the before and after created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Remember, the thread in Ephesians is transformation. God is in the business of changing who you are. You were one thing, but now you're something completely different. All of this stuff that Paul is writing about this hard, calloused, insensitive, indulgent, greedy heart or, or this depravity, this, this bad way of thinking. He's saying all of that is one thing, but you've learned something different, that you have something different than all of that. So if you look at it in verse 20, 21, it says, when you heard about Christ. And, and here's the deal. This is, in my opinion, a very, very unfortunate translation. 
when you heard about Christ. Or some of your translations, if you're reading something different, the NIV might say when you heard of Christ. But the word of and the word about do not exist in the original language. So think about how different that passage reads when you remove the word of or you remove the word about because it says this is not your way of thinking if you heard Jesus. You see how different that is? There's such a, such a, such a, a profound difference. The original language actually says if indeed him you heard. If Jesus spoke to you and you responded in faith, then you are a different person. There is this picture of an active God in our lives, Jesus actually speaking into our lives. So, so the truth of the matter is, it's, it's, it's not enough to hear about Christ. I can, I can read a book about Christ. I can, I can know a thousand things about Jesus and it not change who I am. What changes who I am is the voice of Jesus speaking into my life. What changes you is the voice of Jesus. So it's more than knowing about. It's more than knowing of Jesus. It's having this interaction with the living God. The God who spoke everything into existence wants to speak into your life and bring about profound, absolute change. So in case you're wondering, like, is what Doug's talking about biblical? Is it truth? Remember, Jesus' words were, my sheep hear my voice. Right? And Jesus' own words were said that a time is coming and indeed has come when dead men will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. That there's life in hearing Jesus speak. Paul's saying, if you've heard the voice of Jesus and responded in faith, I have given you a new heart. I have taken that callous, hard heart, insensitive heart, and given you a new heart, a transformed heart. And the deal is, now we have a new heart, we have to learn how do we live into the heart that God has given us? How do we learn to actually be the person God has created us to be in this transformation? Look at verses 22 and 23 again. He says, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desire to be made new in the attitude of your mind and put on the new self. We exchange one attitude or one desire for the other. We take off one way of thinking and we put on the other way of thinking. So in Paul's day, there were these uh, philosophers. They were called cynics and stoics. And you know both those words, right? You know somebody that's a cynic? You know how you would describe them? Someone who's a stoic? You know how you describe them? Well, those are words that have kind of carried over. Excuse me for a minute. <coughs> those are words that have carried over. And, and they carried over from this philosophy, stoicism and cynicism. And the idea of stoicism and cynicism was that desire was the root of all evil. And if a person could rid themselves of desire, then they could be moral people. But any sense of immorality in your life was out of desire. So they became cynics and stoics, ridding themselves of desire, trying to live a moral lifestyle. So they, their, their answer to the problem of immorality was to become dull so much that they wanted nothing so they would desire nothing. But the problem with that is God made you to be passionate. 
God made you to have desires. God made you to feel deeply. God made you to love deeply. God made you to create. God made you to breathe life into things. God made you in the image of himself, and you have all these desires. And so Paul is saying, look, you have to take those attitudes and the desires. You don't shut them down. So sometimes we think the way to, to live the right life is to take our, our desires and to just push them down and to, to get rid of them. And, and he's saying, no, no, you got to exchange this desire for a better desire. We can't move forward by just suppressing our desires. We have to exchange them. So sexual immorality is a desire that's gone bad. God created people to be intimate. God created people to feel deeply. God created sex. God created all of that, and we take the emotion of that and the desire of that, and we turn it in the wrong direction. And he says those desires, those attitudes are deceitful, and the reason they're deceitful is because you feel a pull towards them, but when you move into them, they leave you broken, and they leave you empty, and they leave you hollow, and it becomes shallow. So what, what I want you to hear is don't think that the, the way to, to change is just to push your desire down, but to look at what, what Paul saying that you need to have a new attitude in your mind. You need to change from one way of doing it and have a exchange that passion for a new kind of passion. We see in this, this letter this, this long list of, of behaviors. And when you read them, it's, it, it kind of can become a little bit depressing in some ways. At least it is for me in, in first reading. So in verse 25, he says, speak the truth. Kind of think about our curtain study that we're commanded to like be honest with God and honest with one another. Speak the truth. Nothing deceitful among each other. In verse 26, don't sin in your anger. Done that. Verse 28, don't steal. Verse 29, don't tear each other down with your words, but build each other up with your words. Verse 31, rid yourself of bitterness, rage, anger, fighting, speaking ill of one another. Verse 32, forgive each other just as Christ Jesus forgave you. And so you look at that and you think to yourself, how do we live up to this, this list? How do we live up to, to what's here? And I think part of what Paul is saying is, I know this is a high standard, but I give you a high standard so that you can learn to live into the very thing that I'm calling you to do. And if you look at that list, what you realize is all of these commands are relational commands. You want to know how we could be more united as a church? Not uniform, but united as a church. We lean into speaking the truth to one another, not letting anger go down on the sun, go down on our anger, and not to sin in our anger. So I like that passage because it doesn't say don't ever be angry because that's not realistic. Why? Because God made us passionate. It's in your anger, don't sin. Have some self-control, which is the fruit of the Spirit, right? And, and, and don't sin, but also don't let your anger go down. Keep short accounts with each other. Go to one another and work through your anger. Don't steal. Don't tear each other down. So, so these are huge passages for us as a church. This is what will create unity in church. But every single one of these apply to your home as well. You want to know how to have unity in your home? Apply these verses to, to live into that new heart that God has given you and, and to speak truth to one another and to rid yourself of, of bitterness and rage and anger and fighting. And how about 32? Forgive each other the way Christ forgave you. Unmerited forgiveness will radically transform the church, radically transform your home because it's not carrying the grudge. They're all interconnected and they're all relational. But if we're real, if we're honest, if we're a church without curtains, we realize this is hard stuff. This is a hard standard for us to live into. And what we need to realize is this walk of faith that we're in is a journey, not an arrival. 
that God is in the process of changing us over time, that there's something going on over time. And, and so the question that, that you have to ask when you read a passage like this is, is when Jesus spoke into your life and you responded in faith, were you changed? Or when, when Jesus spoke into your life, did a process of change begin? And here's this, the, the hard answer. It's yes. It's both. When you said yes to Jesus, you were changed. And in being changed, now you need to learn to live into and live out of that change that God has brought about in your life. So it's, it's yes to both. So when you heard the voice of Jesus and you responded in faith, the scripture tells us that God removed your heart of stone. Remember, Paul's talking about a calloused, hard heart. He removed the heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Everything changed. But the other thing he gave you is the Holy Spirit in you, guiding you, teaching you, prompting you to live into this new heart that God has given you. So there's change in the moment that you hear God speak, and then there's change that comes over time. Part of the problem is in, in evangelical Christianity, we teach sometimes, so you hear the prompting of Jesus, say yes to Jesus, Jesus is going to come into your life, and you're going to go to heaven. And all of that is true, but there's a big piece of life that's missing there. Most of us don't say yes to Jesus, die, and go to heaven. It could happen, right? Somebody could be on their deathbed. But, but what happens between yes to Jesus and die and go to heaven is, is usually a whole lot of life that has to be lived. And that process of growing and becoming more and more like Christ and, and allowing God to work in our lives. But knowing God has given you a soft, moldable, changeable heart and the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction and, and understanding and power and, and the ability to live into it. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says live a life worthy and the word live there is actually the word walk it's the exact it, i don't know why they wrote live but it is uh, the, the word walk so we're to walk a life worthy to we're to walk out our journey as a follower of jesus and every time if you're reading ephesians you see the word live just know that the word it's actually the word walk and you could even write in your bible right there the word walk and it would remind you so we're to to walk in a worthy way verse 17 says that, that, that we started today, no longer live like the Gentiles do. Don't walk like the world walks. Verse 5, the opening verse of verse 5, 1 says, be imitators of God and live a life of love. In other words, walk out the love that God has given you. Walk in it. Verse 15 of chapter 5 says, be careful how you live. The word is walk. Be careful how you walk, not as the unwise, but as the wise. The reason I wanted to show you that, because for me, that picture of a walk is more of a picture of a, of a journey, of being on this, this walk with God, of being on this journey with God. And he's saying, be careful what you, what you bring into your life. Be careful how you live your life. Walk in a way that brings glory to God. So we are what? What's our mission statement here? We are, we are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. By the power of the Spirit of God, not by self-help, not by behavioralism, not by taking the book of Ephesians and making a list and trying to live in it, but the Spirit of God working in us, we are in the process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. This happens when we learn to speak the truth to one another, to control our anger, to be honest in all things, to build each other up with our words, to get rid of bitterness and rage and anger and fighting 
and to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. You know, the only way to forgive each other the way Christ has forgiven you is to realize how much Christ has forgiven you. The more you think deeply about the things of God, the more you meditate on the power of God in your own life, the more you are to extend, the more you're able to extend those same virtues to other people. The imperative of Ephesians is to live a life worthy, to live the royal way. And we do this by walking out our faith connected to the one who loves us beyond our wildest imagination. We learn to live a life worthy with our eyes focused on Christ, with our thoughts focused on Christ. That's why Paul wrote in, in, the, in those first three chapters all about God and all that God has done and the richness of God and the power of God because he said you can, you can take all of these lists and you're never going to be able to do them if you don't have a deep understanding of who God is and everything that God has done in your life. Meditate on, think deeply about the things of God. Don't have futile empty, shallow thinking, but think about God and allow God to remind you of who he is and all he has done and the power that he has displayed in your life. The fact is, if you're going to walk with Jesus, it's going to cost you something. I don't think Christianity is for the weak. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make it happen. But the cost of following Jesus is that he's going to require change. The cost of following Jesus is is that he's going to tell you to let go of what's familiar to you. The cost of following Jesus is giving up the illusion that you have of being in control. And don't make any mistake, whatever control you think you have is, is an illusion. Ask anyone who's facing uh, a great trial in health or maybe has lost a, a loved one, a son, a daughter. His control is just an illusion. But when you walk with Christ, he says, let go of control and trust me with your life. And I think the only way that we can live into this is to have a heart of worship. Let me explain that for a minute. The fuel, the energy that we need to navigate through life, to really become more and more like Christ, is worship. It's knowing God so personally that your heart is a heart of worship. And the problem is, when I say worship, most of you think Whatever Mel just did with us and, and the band just did with us, that singing. And what I want you to know is that was an expression of our worship. Worship is a state of being. Worship is, is something that's going on inside of you. You worship when you do the dishes. You can worship when you're cleaning up the dog's stuff in the backyard. You can worship in every aspect of your life. Because worship is a state of being. Worship is deep thinking about the things of God, not futile thinking. And when we come into the church and we sing, it's just an expression of the worship that, always, that already exists in us. And if we would get that, and if we would become worshipers, then when we come together, worship would be more and more powerful because we would bring our collective worshipers together. And here's what God is teaching me. God is teaching me that sometimes I worship because I'm there. I come into church and I am already just fired up and God is doing some amazing stuff. God's always doing amazing stuff, but I'm more aware of it. And I walk in and, and the first note hits and it just, it, it just comes out of me. Other times I'm not there. And when I worship, I get there. When I sing, when I engage in the lyrics that are up on the stage and I let them 
go into my mind, not just be an act of, of busyness, but I actually engage into it and allow it to shape my mind and my thinking. It helps move me towards a heart of worship. So I get it. It kind of goes both ways. Sometimes we do it because we're already there, and sometimes we need to do it to get us there. But, but if you do not have a heart of worship, you cannot live into this verse that, that we're studying today, the getting rid of anger and, and bitterness and rage and forgiving others as, as Christ forgave you will only come when you have a heart of worship, when you are in a place of worship, when you meditate on the things of God, when you know all that God has done for you and all that God cares for you and, and all the ways that God has moved in your life. The honest truth is this is, this is true of all spiritual disciplines, whether it's Bible study, fasting, praying, silence, and solitude. They are all just tools to help you foster a state of being that is worshipful, to, to foster a worshipful spirit in you. So I want to ask a question, and I just want you to think about the question for a minute, and the band can come up, and we're going to sing another song. Um, but as they get ready to sing, uh, I just want you to think about the questions. And the question is, where are you? Where are you? Some of you uh, know Jesus. Some of you have heard Jesus speak clearly to you. Yet there's something in today's message that leaves you a little perplexed. You're saying to yourself, I, I know Jesus has spoke, but man, I, I'm struggling to put on the new self. I'm a little too entrenched in the old self. Maybe that's where you are. Some of you have, have not said yes to Jesus. Some of you have been hovering around this Jesus stuff at Grace for a while, and, and you know, I'm a mess. I need this Jesus that Doug's talking about. I need Jesus to speak to me, and can I tell you, he's speaking. He's speaking through the words that we sing. He's speaking through the words that I'm saying, and my encouragement to you is say yes to Jesus and allow him to give you a soft heart, a moldable heart, a changeable heart. Some of you might be doing pretty good, but you just realize there's still layers. I haven't arrived. There's still layers going on, and I need to let go of some of those layers, and I need to walk up my faith. The thing about this passage is it, it applies to every one of us. It applies to every person in this room. So we're going to sing, and I'm just going to ask you to sit with the question, where are you? Where are you? And what does God require of you? So you can sit, you can stand as we sing. Um, and then I'll come back up and we'll close things. But let's sing together.
I love this church. I love what God is doing here. And uh, I just encourage you, if you feel like you want to keep praying, we're going to keep singing for a little bit. Um, if you're ready to go, we understand that. If you want to come down, we have people here that will pray with you. If you just want to stay where you are standing, uh, some of us will come to you and pray for you. Um, but Lord, thank you that you are doing immeasurably more than we could ask, think, or imagine. Lord, help us to live into uh, our new hearts, to be soft before you, to be broken before you. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that's active in our lives. Help us not to grieve your spirit, but to be sensitive. Help us to hear your voice. Lord, you are always speaking. Help us to tune in. Help us to be your sheep and hear your voice and respond. Thank you that you love us beyond our wildest imagination. Lord, for the people in this room that just know they need to say yes to you but are hesitant, would, would you give them the courage to come down and let us just pray over them and lead them in a way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. As you leave, you're going to get a bag. Fill it.